Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Raphael Warnock is returning to Washington, D.C. as Georgia's U.S. Senator. The Democratic incumbent beat Republican challenger Herschel Walker in Tuesday's runoff election. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. We'll check in with our political strategist duo of Julianne Thompson and Fred Hicks a little later in the program. Also, now the election season is over for now, but COVID-19 is still around. As the winter season approaches, how likely is a significant or maybe even slight increase in not only COVID-19 cases, but other respiratory viruses? In just a moment, I'll speak with Dr. Barbara Mann from the CDC. All that's coming up, but first this. More than a dozen supporters and advocates of the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, or PAD Atlanta, spoke on behalf of the organization today during the Fortin County Board of Commissioners meeting. It was a commission's hearing on the county's proposed budget. Now, last month, some commissioners brought up the idea to stop funding PAD. Here's Commissioner Bob Ellis. PAD, to me, is a program. It's an Atlanta program. It was a pilot for us. Um, You know, to me, they should fund that. And we should pull that $400,000 out and they want to continue to do it. They can do it. Ellis's remarks came as Fulton County prepares to start its lease of the Atlanta City Detention Center, a move that PAD had publicly opposed while calling for increased support and funding for diversion and other wraparound services. Now, during the public comment portion of today's meeting, Lily Ponces told commissioners PAD is a desperate needed resource for the entire city. PAD needs more funding and more support from the Fulton County Sheriff, not less. This year, two people every day who were eligible for diversion to PAD were were instead arrested and taken to Fulton County Jail. Incarcerating people rather than diverting these people cost Fulton County an estimated $2.8 million. As you build next year's budget, keep in mind that how supporting PAD actually saves the county money. Now, there have been two independent studies that conclude hundreds currently detained in Fulton County jails would be better served with diversion service instead of incarceration. In other news, Atlanta is set to swear in its new police chief later today. Mayor Andre Dickens named Darren Sherbaum as the 26th chief of police for the department back in October. And Sherbaum has been with ABD for the last 20 years. Here he is speaking earlier this year after being named the chief. Still surreal. I did not think that when I started my service with the Atlanta Police Department, this is where the journey would take me. Now, Sherman says he plans to keep furthering community engagement and decreasing crime, which, of course, has increased in some areas in the last year. Clayton County School Superintendent Marcy's Beasley will step down earlier than expected, as we hear from Martha Dalton. 
Beasley announced a few weeks ago that he planned to leave the district when his contract ends in June, but the school board announced this week it had reached an agreement with him to end his tenure early. Beasley was tight-lipped recently when WABE asked him about leaving. We're just looking forward to that next opportunity, and we're excited, and we'll keep you all informed as it occurs. In a statement, Beasley says he'll seek different educational achievements but doesn't get specific. Meanwhile, the board has appointed Anthony Smith to serve as interim superintendent. Smith is currently the district's deputy superintendent of governmental relations, partnerships, grants, and operations. He'll take over after Beasley steps down December 16th. Martha Dalton, WABE News. Hundreds of thousands of Georgians have so far signed up for health insurance through healthcare.gov. As we hear from Jess Mador, open enrollment for marketplace plans got underway last month. Georgia's among 33 states that use healthcare.gov rather than a state-based platform. And so far during the current open enrollment period, more than 206,000 people across the state have signed up for a plan. This includes first-time signups and returning policyholders. The same Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services numbers show nearly 3.4 million Americans have signed up nationwide. This year's Affordable Care Act changes include more subsidies designed to make premiums more affordable. The deadline for coverage beginning January 1st is December 15th. For coverage beginning February 1st, you have until January 15th to sign up. Jess Mador, WABE News. And finally, it could be another reason to celebrate beyond bringing in the new year, December 31st. Why? Well, the Georgia Bulldogs, the number one seed in the college football playoff for the first time. So they will face number four, Ohio State, in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. And yes, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in downtown Atlanta. It will be a wild scene for sure. I'll be on the couch where there's no cover charge. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. A report from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation reveals daily global COVID-19 infections are projected to rise slowly to about 18.7 million by February from the current 16.7 million average daily cases. And they say that will be driven by the Northern Hemisphere's winter months. Now, let's come closer to home. Here in the U.S., the Institute predicts daily infections will increase by a third to more than a million. The reason? Well, they say students returning from winter break and, of course, all those cold weather-related indoor gatherings. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Joining me now with more is Dr. Barbara Mann, Deputy Chief of the Enteric Disease Epidemiology Branch at the CDC, 
I'm curious to know more about that. She's also a pediatrician and epidemiologist who trained as a disease detective in the CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service, EIS. Dr. Ben, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. EIS, that sounds like it should be on a network, like a <laughs> television show. Let's begin here, because back in October, as someone you know, uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky said, I'm going to quote her here, we are in a different phase of this pandemic. And then she added, there are still, in my mind, far too many Americans that are dying of COVID, partially due to low vaccine, low booster uptake, close quote. How much truth is in that and how concerning is that for you all? Yeah, I think that's a... um there's a lot of truth in that. Um, we're uh, clearly in a different phase of COVID-19. It's not the disruptive threat that it once was, but that certainly doesn't mean that COVID is over. Um, and, um, you know, schools and businesses are open and people are getting back to their more normal routines more safely. And really importantly, we have the tools to prevent most uh, COVID deaths and severe illnesses. Um, so we really all need to keep doing our part, um, including by getting an updated vaccine this winter and getting treated if, if we get sick or uh, and are at high risk. You know, but at the same time, it's it, it, the virus isn't the same issue it once was. And so we really can move forward safely. I want to talk about that because last year this time there was concerns about the new variants leading to an increase in cases. How did the nation fare, though, Dr. Mann, during the winter season, which ended obviously earlier here in 2022? How, how did we get through that? Yeah. Well, you know, for the last two winters, so the winter of uh, – 2020 to 2021 and winter of 2021 to 2022, we have had big surges of COVID-19 that really stressed our healthcare system with a lot of people getting really sick, um, a lot of deaths, and um, you know, really a, a huge challenge to, to the nation and to all of our communities. This year, um, we are um, watching carefully to see what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. um, we do expect that um, new variants are gonna continue to occur. Um, and um, we also know that uh, respiratory viruses typically do increase in the fall and the winter. Mm -hmm. um, and so we would not be at all surprised if we had an increase in COVID-19 this winter, along with some of the other respiratory viruses that are you know, getting back more towards their normal circulation, like RSV and influenza that have mm -hmm. also been in the news. So. Um, we're we're watching carefully. We're concerned. We really are encouraging people to get their flu vaccine, to get their their updated COVID vaccine, and um, to um, get tested and get treated if they get sick and are in high risk groups. Because there are medicines that can treat both flu and COVID. Let's talk about messaging for a moment, because obviously you're you all leading been leading the charge in terms of getting the message out. We know about concerns of, of conflicting messages, not only from the CDC, but then also maybe what public health departments were saying and then what some folks were saying from Washington, D.C. And it was it was just a lot of folks saying a lot of different things. But now as we get into heading to the winter break, what is your hope that local health departments will also be reiterating this message. I mean, I just did a story not too long ago where we talked about the health departments encouraging Georgians here to get vaccinated and to be mindful. Are you seeing that health departments got to be crucial in this messaging? State health departments. Yeah, state health departments and local health departments are, they're really 
they're the engine. They're where the rubber meets the road. And um, they're so important to keeping um, the people safe uh, and healthy. And so um, we the, the the messages about you know getting vaccinated for flu and, and the updated vaccine for COVID, um, they're just the basic everyday um, health and hygiene practices like hand washing, like um, improving ventilation, um, you know, air filtration when gathering indoors, like um, avoiding contact with people who are ill, um, getting tested if you do get ill and you need it. Um, we think uh, th those um, messages can really help people get through the winter safely and uh, keep their loved ones safe. And um, uh, I think health departments are um, on board with, with uh, those um, messages about vaccination testing mm -hmm. and everyday measures to keep yourself well. It is my understanding that to better help forecast the potential COVID-19 rates that you all, folks like you, you always seem to turn a watchful eye to what's happening in Europe. Why is that? Well, um, the we watch what's happening all over the world. So we watch what's happening in Europe. And of course, Europe watches what's happening here. Mm -hmm. We watch what's happening in Asia. And um, Asia watch, watches what's happening here. In several, uh, for several of the uh, variants that have emerged uh, across the pandemic, they emerged first in other countries and then you know, spread around the world. Mm -hmm. There were a few that emerged here in the U.S. and um, and didn't get too much traction, but everyone was watching those. So this is really uh, infectious disease is a global concern, and so all of us in public health, um, really in countries around the world, are watching the global situation as well as our own situations in our own countries. I have a question here from a listener who says that how do how do you all determine who should be quote fully vaccinated as opposed to, you know, just getting booster shots. It's confusing, Rose, is what the listener says. Yeah, and I, I know it has been confusing. We have been, um, things have moved so quickly during the pandemic. And uh, I do hope that we're getting to, we all hope that we're getting to a place where um, we're not going to need to be changing recommendations as, as frequently mm -hmm. as we have. But right now, it's really quite simple. Um, CDC recommends that everyone's ages six months and older should have gotten their uh, vaccination for COVID-19, mm -hmm. their, their primary series. And then everyone five years and older should also get an updated COVID-19 booster if they're eligible for it. Mm -hmm. And they're eligible typically if two months have passed since their last booster. So it's, it's simpler than it used to be. Um, if you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you're eligible for an updated booster, get the updated booster. And then there was there's a booster and then there was another booster. So I want to be very clear. How many booster shots then are you recommending if you've had the initial vaccination? Right now, yeah, we're recommending that the updated booster, this is the the um, we call it bivalent, includes both the original um, the original strain and then the more recent Omicron um, subvariants that were called BA.4 and BA.5. It includes both of those. And that updated booster can both help to restore protection that has waned since a person's last shot, whenever that was. Mm -hmm. And it can also provide broader protection against new variants. So what we're recommending is that if you haven't been vaccinated at all, get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. If you have been vaccinated, get the updated booster. 
When you talk about new variants, because I remember when Delta was the variant that everybody talked about, then it was Omicron, that was the variant, then it was a sub-variant of that. And look, all the experts have said, you know, there is likely there always will be a new variant coming on board. With these vaccines, can you understand folks saying, well, you know, if there's going to be a new variant coming on, are you all going to keep saying that we have to get more more booster shots? Because a variant comes can come any anytime. You can understand that concern. I can understand the concern. I also think that part of being in a different place now is that um, we have the experience where the vaccines have protected quite well against medically significant illness, hospitalization um, throughout. And they have gone up and down to some extent with new Mm -hmm. variants, but throughout they have protected against whatever variant was circulating. So um, I, I... um, I, I hope that we will at, be at a point soon where it's mm-hmm. really just a regular, um, you know, re- a regular annual shot. We don't know that for sure yet, mm-hmm. but I think we can say with with confidence at this point, based on uh, almost uh, two years of ex- experience with these vaccines, that what has been consistently true throughout is that they've protected people very well against serious illness, hospitalization, and that's really what matters most. I want to uh, shift for a moment, Dr. Mann, and talk about uh, long-haul COVID. I, I remember doing a study, uh, not study, doing a segment on this, some, I think last year, year before, where we talked about, you know, the fog that comes with after COVID-19 and now concerns about those who, who took the, the antiviral drug and then with a few days after being infected with the virus were less likely to experience what you all call long COVID months later. This is a study. Can, can you just kind of, it, it was a little bit confusing for a lot of folks. Can you just kind of take people through what this is all about when we talk about long COVID? Yeah, sure. I can try. So um, with, uh, after COVID, um, some people have experienced um, a variety of um, health concerns um, and um, among those concerns is what, what is often uh, called long COVID, which is a sort of chronic fatigue, um, brain fog. And um, we are studying that very intensely um, uh, across the US government. NIH has studies, um, CDC has studies. We're really, um, uh, really prioritizing trying to understand um, that um, syndrome as, as best we can, and to understand, most importantly, what can be done to prevent it and to treat it. Um, information, we're still learning a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we know at this point is that um, people who are vaccinated are less likely to get COVID and less likely to get long COVID. Sure. There's some information suggesting that people who have had COVID who get vaccinated are also less likely to get long COVID or their long COVID may improve. And there's also information that people who are treated with the the drug called Paxlovid after Mm -hmm. they have um, developed COVID are less likely to get long COVID. So both the the messages I was um, giving you in response to some of your early questions apply here too, that getting vaccinated and getting treated is really important. I used to always ask, and Dr. Carlos Del Rio was on this program. We've had some other wonderful experts from Emory and Georgia State. And I, I used to always ask them, you know, what is it about this particular COVID-19, this particular virus that is still perplexing to to folks like you all? And you'll get that same question, too. Uh, throughout all of this, is there something that's still just for you that that is is challenging with this virus? 
There are, um, I think there are quite a number of um, really fascinating questions. I think um, for me, the questions that really affect people's lives are the questions that matter most. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, the questions about uh, long COVID, post-COVID conditions, how much of a uh, burden that's going to place on people um, in the, for the very long term, I think is a super important question. Um, we will um, be, a lot more information is going to become available. It's going to becoming available about that, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what that information tells us. I want to go back to something when we started this conversation because I was fascinated by this EIS. I wanted to know more more about this. The CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service. What is that about? The Epidemic Intelligence Service has been around for decades. It's the it's a CDC program that trains um, mostly doctoral level people, but also people from other backgrounds in what we call field epidemiology. Mm -hmm. So it's outbreak investigation and really where the uh, shoe leather public health, where um, you know uh, we're it's not academic. It's about um, actually doing the practical work to understand the real problems that are um, facing people, um, you know, today. Mm -hmm. So uh, field epidemiology training program, super fun. When I was an EIS officer, I um, got to, among other things, uh, learn. Uh, I, I used to joke that I was I knew more about alpha alpha sprouts than any other pediatrician in America because <laughs> I had investigated an outbreak linked to alpha alpha sprouts. For our listeners who do have the little ones, and we've been talking with a, 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 someone who works in your field from Children's Health Care of Atlanta, who's also been stressing to parents to get their, their kids vaccinated. What kind of conversations do you have with parents and the questions that they still may have about the vaccine for kids? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, parents have um, the parents have had a lot of questions. I think parents generally trust their pediatrician and their healthcare provider to give them the right information. And I really encourage parents, you know, to, to have that conversation with their healthcare provider um, who can answer their specific questions for their child. Um, we do recommend mm -hmm. um, COVID vaccination for uh, all children um, uh, over um, six months old. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, COVID has not been as severe in um, children as it has been in older, older people, but it can and does cause severe illness in young children and vaccination really can protect them. And finally, Dr. Mann, as we begin to wrap up, and I love asking this question too, you know, what, what is your hope where we will be maybe at the end of 2023? And, and I bring you back on the program and we talk about what 2023 brought in terms of COVID-19. What is your hope where we'll be? Well, I hope that we're going to be in a place where we're using all the tools that we've developed um, for uh, during the pandemic for COVID-19 um, to control COVID-19 and applying lessons learned for other respiratory viruses. And also that uh, our society is um, back more toward a place where people don't feel so scared and don't feel so confused and things just feel a little bit more uh, feel a little bit more normal to uh, to kids and to their parents and to everybody. Oh, you know what? I have one more co question. And I try to get all the questions in for my listeners. I have a listener that wants to know, can't you all just give another sort of national warning to, for folks to wear their mask, even if it's not a mandate so we can get through the winter? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. And we have been stressing that this is an option that people have. Um, 
And um, we know that, you know, we have good science showing that masks protect people for COVID and for flu. And it makes sense that it would protect people for other respiratory viruses as well. So we definitely are encouraging people to think about uh, using a mask um, if they uh, want, you know, certainly if they're not feeling well, if they want to protect themselves from respiratory viruses, it is an option that's available to them. Now, I imagine that there will be a lot of folks at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium for the UGA uh, playoff game. I don't know if folks will be wearing masks, but that is a huge gathering. If you wanted to stress something to everyone who's going, and not just the the game, because I'll get an email, but, you know, New Year's Eve parties, what have you, what do you want to stress as we say goodbye? Well, I think it's important for people to just be thinking about these issues, um, thinking about their own level of risk, thinking about the level of risk of their household members and their loved ones and just be making uh, good decisions for themselves about how they, um, what makes sense for them to protect themselves and to protect the important people in their lives. All right, Dr. Barber. Enjoy and enjoy the game. There you go. Who are you rooting for? Oh, I'm I'm not a fan. I'm sorry. You're not a football football (laughs) fan? I root for the Bulldogs, right? Well, you you can root for whomever you like, Dr. Mann. Dr. Barbara Mann, Deputy Chief of the Enteric Disease Epidemiology Branch at the CDC. Really appreciate you taking the time with this valuable information for our listeners. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Thank you. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. We'll continue in just a moment, but want to bring you some breaking news from the Atlanta Police Department. Investigators announced today they have made two arrests in the 17th Street shootings that killed 12-year-old Zion Charles and 15-year-old Cameron Jackson. This was over the Thanksgiving weekend holiday. Now, speaking to reporters, Deputy Chief Charles Hampton Jr. said a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old were arrested yesterday afternoon and have been charged with two counts of murder, aggravated assault, and gang-related charges. According to APD, both suspects are Atlanta Public School students. Yeah, this investigation is, is not over. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the additional charges will be, uh, but again, we do anticipate additional charges uh, coming forth. Uh, again, this detective uh, standing behind me uh, is still working this case. Uh, he still has interviews that he has to conduct, uh, but it, it's not over. Uh, but again, I, I can't say right now uh, what those charges will be. We have to allow the investigation to dictate that. Uh, but uh, he is still working. He's still here. Uh, but again, we anticipate additional charges uh, to come forth. Now, Deputy Chief Charles Hampton went on to say the 16-year-old suspect was arrested in New York City with the assistance of U.S. Marshals. He also added that additional charges are expected for other juveniles identified in surveillance video provided by MARTA from the aftermath of the shootings. Closer Look returns in just a moment.
From WAB in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. As he addressed supporters last night, Senator Raphael Warnock stressed the perseverance it took to defeat challenger Herschel Walker. After a hard-fought campaign, or should I say campaigns, it, it is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. And for Republican challenger Herschel Walker, he told his supporters. The best thing I've ever done in my whole entire life is run for the Senate seat right here. And the reason I'm going to say that is I got a chance to meet all you and to hear what you guys feel about this country. And I got a chance to, for you guys to tell me what you do feel about this country. I got a chance to go into your homes, got a chance that you uh, invested in Herschel Walker. And I thank you. And I thank you so much. The race, this race, was historic for many reasons and costly. A lot of money flowed into this state for this race. The Democrats now have a majority lead in the Senate. And that's significant for a number of reasons, but there's a lot more to talk about it. So let's welcome in, as we always do, our political strategist duo of Julianne Thompson and Fred Hicks. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Rose, for having us, especially during your birthday week. Happy belated birthday. Yes, I'm seasoned. Happy birthday, Rose. (laughs) Thank you, Julianne. (laughs) Let's begin with turnout, because according to the Georgia Secretary of State's office, look, the number of voters on Election Day broke the previous record high for turnout. More than 1.6 million people voted yesterday. Julian, I'll start with you. What do you make of that? It was monumental. Early voting numbers as well as Election Day voting numbers were record highs. Um, and, And as it was in the general election, too, especially with early voting. And I think it was just, um, it, it was a showing of how important voting is to the people of Georgia and how important it is to them to make sure that they have a say in who represents our state. And the people let, as Senator Warnock said last night, the people have spoken and, um, and you know, congratulations to, to Senator Warnock on his reelection. Um, and, you know, there's, I have a whole lot to say about this, but that's probably all you want me to say at this point, And you want me to let Fred take a turn. Yeah, well, we're going to dissect this in a moment. But Fred, turnout numbers, uh, historic. So we projected from our internal data and what we do over here about 1.7 million uh, for the turnout yesterday. So I was very encouraged to see that, it, that, it, that the actual turnout number approached that. And we, I calculated that based on the number of what we call super voters. So the number of people who voted in the 2020 general election and the 2021 runoff and the November 8th, 2022 election, um, that totaled about 1.7 million. And I removed the number of people who voted during early voting. So that left about 1.7. Mm-hmm. So that's this is right around what I thought we'd have. Somewhere between, I thought it could dip down as low as about 1.45, mm-hmm. uh, but one, somewhere between 1.45 and 1.7. Let's and so I would like to say that I think that that's pretty amazing given SB 202, 
given that, uh, which is the elections bill, given that there was only four weeks to vote, given that drop boxes have pretty much been eliminated. I mean, you have them, but it's really difficult to use them. And given that voting by mail was fairly non-existent in this runoff as well. So it showed that people, to Julian's point, that people really, Georgians, mm -hmm. really, really, really wanted to express themselves. And uh, I congratulate and salute every single person who turned out to vote, and as well as the poll workers for managing that and keeping their wait times down low. Let's talk Absolutely. about yeah. Let's talk about uh, Warnock's path to victory. Juliana, go back with you. Listen, there are a whole lot of theories here. Some will say, look, perhaps not enough of Kemp supporters did not come out to support Herschel Walker. There was some traditional GOP counties that favored Warnock. I'll let you begin to dissect this. What was the difference here for Warnock over Walker? Well, I mean, I think that we'll all agree that it was a nail biter all night long. I mean, we went back and forth from uh, Senator Warnock being on top to Herschel Walker being on top, and it just went back and forth. Um, either could have won this campaign. This campaign was monumental for, for a multitude of reasons. I think first and foremost, the, the fact that on the, both the Democrat side and the Republican side, the candidates were African-American, which I think says so many wonderful things about the state of Georgia and how far the state has come. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I applaud that. And that really excites me about the future of our state. Um, but I think the fact that this race was so razor thin close at, at many times, it was a 50 50 race, which tells me that we are a very evenly split state. Um, and if you look at the general election and you look at Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams race, it, it turned out differently. There was a, a different, a, a much higher number for Governor Kemp than there was for Herschel Walker. Of course, it was much closer than 50-50 mm -hmm. or much, much farther apart than 50-50. And I think that's because it showed that Brian Kemp can reach across the political aisle and, and pull in swing voters and pull in um, pull in maybe some of those Reagan Democrats, for lack of a better term, um, and a lot of farmers, whereas I don't think that Herschel Walker had the same broad-based appeal that Governor Kemp has. That being said, I think that what the Republicans can take away from this is, first and foremost, it's about the message. Mm -hmm. It's about the messenger. And it's about the infrastructure and how the get out the vote ground game goes. Republicans had a great ground game during this runoff. There's absolutely no doubt about it, as did the Democrats. But what we were lacking is the right kind of messaging, even though even though I know everyone tried really hard, the message that hit home with voters in the state of Georgia was the message that Brian Kemp brought to them during the general election, focusing on the economy, focusing on those kitchen table issues, which really did not happen in this runoff. And I think that is what showed uh, last night when when we lost this election. Let me ask you this before I get to Fred. Do you, you talked about the message, but I want to talk about the messenger too. And that mm -hmm. is Herschel Walker. Now, I don't know if you all read the opinion piece from outgoing Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. And I'm going to quote him here. Quote, many of my critics and even some of my supporters urged me to be a team player and fall in line. 
They were disappointed, to put it mildly, mildly about my decision to leave the ballot blank. The angry and threatening phone calls were a flashback to 2020 when I refused to go along with Donald Trump's conspiracy theories, close quote, and that is in the AJC. So, Julian, can you, are you willing to admit that there was a problem with the messenger here being Herschel Walker as well? Well, first and foremost, let me say this. I mean, I, I like Jeff Duncan, but here is where I differ with him. Mm-hmm. I was also one of those people that did not go along with Donald Trump's conspiracy theories. I also am one of those people that do not believe that the 2020 election was stolen. But at the same time, I am not going to uh, come out right before the election and say, well, I waited in line and then all of a sudden I decided not to vote. Um, and and I just really fundamentally disagree with the way that that the lieutenant governor uh, approached that particular mm-hmm. um, issue, I guess we'll say. Um, that being said, I think that if Republicans want to win in the future, whether it is the state of Georgia or whether it is anywhere else in the country, they can look at Brian Kemp and his campaign as a model for victory as to how Republicans can win, as to having the right kind of messenger, as to having the right kind of messaging. And I mean, Brian Kemp stood up to the most, I I mean, you know, we we had so many people talking about some of our elected officials, whether it was Brian Kemp, whether it was Brad Raffensperger, uh, many of our, our elected officials, we had people in the Republican base saying, things about them, calling them cowards and everything else, just because they stood up to Donald Trump, who was the most powerful man in the world. And they they did that. They are far from being cowards. They did that. They were successful as a result of that. And the people of Georgia said, we will decide who best represents our state, not the former president, not anyone else from outside the state of Georgia. We will decide who leads our state. And I think that the people of Georgia are ready to move on. You you are correct. But unfortunately for them, it wasn't Kemp or Raffensperger that was up for U.S. Senate. Fred, I want to bring you to the conversation. What was this? What was this pathway, this victory for Warnock that might have included issues that folks had with Walker. Yeah, so I'm going to say it just simply. Herschel Walker was a real problem. Um, and Herschel Walker was an insult to many African-Americans. And and that's floating around social media. And I think that Republicans, I'm not calling, I'm not going ad hominem on Julianne, but I think Republicans would do really well to pay attention to what Black folks are saying um, about that. It was, it was, he was the worst he was the fulfillment of every negative stereotype that that white people in Georgia typically have had about African Americans, and so he was an insult. He wasn't very well learned. He was he was he his only real claim to fame was his athleticism. Um, he every negative thing that that people have said about black men or stereotypes of troops, he was the fulfillment of that. And so it was insulting to African Americans, and had a lot to do with why black folks, especially over the last few days, made the decision to come out and vote because it was like the Republican Party just disrespects us and thinks we're that dumb that you can put anybody with a black face up there and that's gonna dilute the, the, the voting pool. And so, cause I'll tell you, you know, the early voting numbers were, were fairly okay, but there was still, when we have built that model with that 1.7 million that we talked about, 
um, the Republicans in that model had a 300,000 vote advantage. So for Herschel Walker to lose by at least 100,000, and that number is continuing to grow as, mm -hmm. as the cabinet and other counties come in, and particularly in the black counties, it shows that he that he was offensive to African American to a large number of African American voters. So he was absolutely the wrong messenger. And I want to challenge one other assumption, and Julianne didn't say this, but I've heard this a lot, that, well, if the Republicans had nominated someone else, then there would have been a different result. And to that, I say that the Warnock campaign was structured and built around the opponent that they had. If it was Kelvin King or Gary Black or someone like that, then they would have had a very different campaign. But, uh, and then as you pointed out, it wasn't Brad Reffensberger or Brian Kemp on the ballot in this runoff, it was Herschel Walker. And once all the noise died down and people were able to just focus on the candidates, you see that they made a clear decision and Georgia is a purple state. I want to go back to Juliana for a moment because with this being so close and based on what you just said with what Kemp particularly was doing and standing up against Donald Trump, does Kemp run for Senate in the future here? Is he the, is he the best hope for Georgia? Well, he's certainly the best hope for Georgia at this point in time. Um, I think that there is a strong possibility that he will run for Senate, although I have not discussed that with him, um, and, I, and I hope to. Um, but I think there's a strong possibility because of the type of winning candidate that he is. And I think, you know, that that we could see him running for even higher office beyond that. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens. But going back to what Fred said about Senator Warnock, mm -hmm. um, I think and in and, and, and talking about whether or not he would have won the election last night if Republicans had put up another candidate, you know, we we won't know that we'll never really know that. But what we can know is this. Senator Warnock did win last night and Herschel Walker did concede. So we have moved on. We are not, there's no contesting of the election. There's no anyone, there's no people out there saying that this election was stolen. So we all acknowledge the fact that Senator Warnock won the election and it is now incumbent upon the Senator to represent all of Georgia to say to Republicans, I know you didn't support me, but I am your senator too, and I will represent you as well. And I think he has a real opportunity here to do some outreach and and to be that voice, um, whether, and we need more of them, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, we need more voices that will say, you may have not voted for me, but I am your senator too. So, Joseph Biden said that when he was originally, when he was originally sure. elected as president, okay. but he hasn't governed that way. Go and ahead. I'm hoping that Senator Warnock will. Go ahead, Fred. Okay, let me jump into that. First of all, I want to I want to correct something there. You said that you hope that he will do it this way. He's already been doing that. He has he has introduced a number of bills and he's tried to work across the aisle. Number two, he was very clear, and that was one of his main points last night in his in his victory speech. And he said, let me be clear. I'm whether you voted for me or not, I want I will represent you, I will work for you, I will continue doing the things that he's done. And he has tried to do those things, particularly on the ag as a member of the ag committee and putting forth bills and all of that to help to help rural Georgia. Um, the characterizations that were mischaracterizations that were made of him during this campaign were really, I mean you could chalk it up to just being politics, but it was really there was a huge stretch. Number three, I, I, and many Democrats feel the same way. It's very interesting that when Republicans lose, they automatically start demanding that Democrats tailor their policies and their actions to to accommodate and to, some might say, coddle Republicans. But when Republicans win, 
and are in charge, you don't see that same thing given. So I'm not saying that Senator Warnock has actually made it very clear that he's going to continue to work on it. But when when there are disagreements, there are just disagreements. But he does not what? owe what? he does not <laughs> owe the Republican Party a point of doing something. He owes Georgians, and it's not about party, not about Republican or Democrat. It's about what's in the best interest of Georgians. Go ahead, Julian. I, I think I just said both Democrats and Republicans, which, you know, encompass everyone in Georgia, except, of course, for independents and libertarians. And I think you should represent them, too. What I find funny about that particular comment is the fact that that you stated when when Republican wins, a Republican wins, you don't see Democrats doing that. Of course you do. Of course you see Democrats coming on the air and saying, well, I hope they'll work with us now. I, and I all the, Republicans you don't see the same do exact can, thing. You see the you same exact thing. And what I am hoping is, and what I stated and, and continue to stand on is the fact that I said, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, we need to see more elected officials getting out there and representing everyone in their state mm. and not just not not so what just I, what the I said, Julianne, a partisan hack for the people what, on their particular side of the aisle. And, and Senator Warnock hasn't been that. And that, that's what I said. And what I also said is that Republicans demand that of Democrats or Democrats win, but they don't return that courtesy when Republicans win. You can look at HB 481. Uh, you can look at SB 202, the election integrity bill. There wasn't a problem with the elections in Georgia, and Republicans rammed that through. They rammed through the the, the anti-abortion bill. Uh, the whole idea, when you look at the federal level of, of voting lockstep against climate change, uh, against climate uh, legislation to slow climate change, whereas Herschel Walker pointed out, that we all breathe the same air. So, so no, what we've got to do is yes, what Republicans need to bring the same energy when they lose to the table when they win and not just demand that, oh, now Democrats have 51 seats. Oh, well, hey, you gotta, you gotta make sure you, you, you govern for all of us. Senator Warnock has done that. And, and democratic policies do benefit everyone and they're not exclusionary, let, unlike let me, uh, other policies. Okay, and let me, cause we're about a minute left. I wanna get your all thoughts on this. We know some familiar names for 2024 in terms of the presidential election. Are there any other names out there? Any other surprising names? And Julianne, I'll go with you first. That you that might surface that you're watching and we know about DeSantis and we know about, you know, Trump, any other names out there? Of course, I've, I've said it before, um, Brian Kemp and Tim Scott. Those are the other two names that I see as very strong contenders uh, at this point in time. Now, Fred, there has been this sort of coalition with the Dems. That, is anyone going to come out now and say, I want to challenge Biden. Uh, you know, I mean, Gavin Newsom said he wasn't going to do it. But the, look, I get these emails about don't do it, Joe, or whatever these groups are called. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be fair so, about this. I don't think I don't think you're going to have a major challenger should the president decide to do it. And even Newt Gingrich this past weekend said that Republicans uh, should only discount. Well, if they continue to discount Joe Biden, they would do it at his peril, at their peril. That he likened Joe Biden to Ronald Reagan and what he's been able to accomplish with uh, an antagonistic Congress. And that was quite a bit coming from the former speaker. Nice. So if he wants to do it, fine. But if he doesn't, Raphael Warnock would be a great name to consider. 
Interesting. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Julian and Fred, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our listeners enjoy your conversations as well. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Reminder, let me know your thoughts on today's program. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 